Rumpole and the Official Secret by John Mortimer Adapted by Richard Stoneman Starring Julian Rhine-Tutt as Horace Rumpole Another glass of the house red. Thank you, Erskine Brown. Uh, you know, it might be easier if we sat at the bar, save you having to keep walking over there to get served. No. We can't have anyone overhearing our conversation. Hmm. Loose lips sink ships. You do realise the war ended over 20 years ago? Well, the Cold War didn't. The Cold War is raging all around us. Is it? Do you have some communist sympathies, Rumpel? I have sympathy for my fellow man. Yeah. I was going to put a brief your way, but perhaps you're not the right chap after all. What brief? An old friend of mine from school, Oliver Bowling, is a senior civil servant at the Ministry of Defence. Mm. Someone in his department leaked confidential material to a journalist, and that someone needs a barrister. Are you interested? It depends on the facts of the case. Uh, it seems that a Miss Rosemary Tuttle... A low-ranking civil servant handed over classified information to a Miss Tina Bradbury of the Sunday Express, who published a story which has caused panic and Mm. consternation in the corridors of power. What was the story? I have it here. You can read it yourself. Government extravagance has been highlighted by the astonishing sum spent subsidising tea and biscuits consumed by civil servants at the Ministry of Defence. Tea and biscuits. Dynamite. No. No. There's nothing explosive about tea and biscuits. There's no mention of nuclear weapons or plans for a new aircraft carrier. Just Earl Grey and Garibaldi. It is still a breach of the Official Secrets Act. And Miss Rosemary Tuttle still faces a long spell in prison if she's found guilty of leaking that information to a journalist. Why is Miss Tuttle being accused of this horrendous act of treason? She was seen by a minister's private secretary, acting suspiciously late at night. What exactly was she doing? Operating a Xerox machine. The private secretary heard the machine in action, but when he went into the copying room, there was no one there. Just a bright green hand-knitted glove, Mm. later identified as belonging to Miss Tuttle. So the private secretary didn't actually see Miss Tuttle. (laughs) What are you two whispering about? Uh, Nothing, Ballard, nothing at all. Uh, Something rather hush-hush. Is it the secrets, Kez? The secret biscuits, yes. Rumpole. You know I'm prosecuting. Are you? Henry thought you might be defending Rumpole. Is he right? I'm afraid that's classified information. So you are defending. Well, we'll say no more about it for now, then, save for this. What's at stake here isn't merely biscuits. I know. We mustn't forget the tea. Look, I really think we should be much more careful. After all, careless talk costs lives. Yes. Be like Dad. Keep Mum. Quite so. Now, uh, concerning my forthcoming nuptials, which is why I'm here, Erskine Brown, how are you getting on with the wine? Uh, I've still got half a glass of Chablis, thank you very much. No, 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 I'm not asking if you want a refill. I'm asking if you found some decent bottles at a reasonable price for my wedding. Ah. Now, I must confess, I haven't made much progress as yet. Perhaps I could help with your search for some drinkable plonk. I don't want anything from this place, Rumpel. No, of course not. We'll go to a merchant, I know, in the city. Uh, if you're sure you don't want a case of Chateau Thames? No! In the morning, I arrived in Equity Court full of beans because I'd had a brainwave concerning my new brief. Ah, the porter of our chambers. Good morning. Good morning, Mr Rumpole. I'd like you to help me with a rather interesting case. I think you'll find it amusing in a, in a top-secret kind of way. Top-secret? I've said too much already. 
Oh, if it's the M.O.D. biscuits, Claude's yeah. already given me the details at considerable length. Mm. You know what he's like when he goes on and on about something you have no interest in whatsoever, and he's too insensitive to listen and too selfish to care how you're feeling. Do I detect a slight tension in the Erskine Brown household? <sighs> I'm growing tired of Claude, Mr. Rumpole, and I don't know what to do. Well, now, I'm, I'm not sure we should talk about this here with so many colleagues nearby, including your husband, perhaps. I neither know nor care where he is. We travel to and from work quite separately these days. We lead our own lives. The nanny takes care of the children and Claude takes care of himself. Who takes care of you? If I work hard all the time, I can forget that I'm miserable. Well, that's awful. But if you really want to work hard all the time, why not help me with the secret biscuits? I gather it's going to court quite soon. Next week. Oh, I have a long firm fraud in Doncaster. Doncaster? I'm so sorry. Oh, I'd rather be there than at home with Claude. Have you asked Liz Probert? I know she's looking for something to do. You don't think she's a little too unconventional for the Official Secrets Act? You mean she's a socialist? Her politics are none of my business. Ah, there you are, Rambo. Uh, Oh, good morning, Philip. Claude. I didn't hear you leave the house this morning. I was trying not to clatter round the kitchen like a bull in a china shop as requested. Part of all your hope, ma chérie. Oh, the fair buer ta tête, Conard. <clears throat> Sorry about that, Rumpel. Uh, Philip and I are having a little wobble on the domestic front. I, I have to confess there have been quite a few tears. Really? Well, try to pull yourself together. Oh, me? Philip is the one who blubs all the time. I haven't cried since my first day at Winchester. You know, talking of which, I've got my old school chum waiting to meet you in my room. Come along. I followed my learned friend along the corridor and into his room. Sitting on his old leather sofa were a man and a woman. The man had an expression that suggested he was constantly amused by the foolishness of humanity. This is a most ridiculous business, Mr. Rumpole. It's not going to do anyone the slightest bit of good. The woman on the sofa was, of course, Miss Rosemary Tuttle, a spinster in her fifties, wearing bright, hand-knitted clothing that was distinctive, but not in a good way. It's so very nice to meet you, Mr. Rumpole. And you, Miss Tuttle. Um... Mr. Brown. Ah, Miss Probert. What can I do for you? Actually, I want Mr. Rumpole. Oh, that's not a phrase one hears very often. <laughs> How can I help you, Elizabeth? Mrs. Erskine Brown says you need some help with a case, Mr. Rumpole. Something about biscuits, but she couldn't tell me any more than that. Is it a shoplifter? Uh, not exactly, no. This lady is, in fact, our client, Rosemary Tuttle, and this gentleman... Oliver Bowling, hello. I suspect I'm playing too prominent a role and I should retreat into the shadows, but I do want to support Paul Rosemary, so if you need a character witness, that sort of thing... I'll let you know, thank you. Yeah. Claude, why don't you walk me out? Leave these good people to talk to their client in private. Oh, yes, uh, good idea. Goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Buy me a cup of coffee, Claude. Oh, can I, Olive? I quickly briefed Liz Probert on the facts of R.V. Tuttle. Liz was, of course, quite au fait with the relevant points of the law. Everyone knows the Official Secrets Act is a flawed piece of legislation used by the government to fuel their own paranoia and protect them from public scrutiny, Mr. Rumpole. I quite agree, but Miss Tuttle is bound by that piece of legislation, flawed or not, and she's alleged to have copied confidential documents and given them to the press. 
If Miss Tuttle has broken the law, the jury is still entitled to acquit her. Well, yes, it's their ancient and inalienable privilege, and I shall tell them so. I hope you will, Mr Rumpole. If you think it is a sign of bureaucracy run mad, members of the jury, that this unfortunate lady should be hounded through the courts just because our masters in government can't restrain their revolting greed for Bath Olivers and Dundee shortbread, then you are fully entitled to return a resounding verdict of not guilty. My client did what she did so that the taxpayer should not be stung with an escalating bill for Bourbon's chocolate-covered digestives and, God save us, macaroons. I'm awfully sorry to ask, but mm. are you going to say all that in court? Strong stuff, perhaps, but entirely justified, in my opinion. The only thing is, I didn't do it. I'm jolly well innocent, Mr Rumpole. Yes, but your glove was found by the Xerox machine. I can't understand how it got there. Surely you copied some documents and gave them to the Sunday Express? And now, if you didn't, Miss Tuttle, Mr Rumpole can't make his speech, see? Don't come now, Elizabeth, that's hardly the point. I was in a position of trust. Why would I betray that trust? Because you wanted to go into battle against the forces of bureaucracy. If you admit this noble act, I can turn you into a heroine, a Joan of Arc. And if I deny it? Oh, then you're just an ordinary criminal trying to lie your way out of trouble. Do think, Miss Tuttle, do think, please, very carefully. I've got to tell the truth. In which case, let us examine the evidence. Exhibit one, the typed note that was sent to... Tina Bradbury at the Sunday Express. You haven't seen this yet, Elizabeth. Oh, no, no. <clears throat> Do you want to hear about tea and scandal, their ancient custom in the Ministry of Defence? It's all highly secret and might make a good story for your column. Oh, my. Come into St James's Park, Thursday lunchtime from the Mall. I'll be on the first bench to the right after you've crossed the bridge. Don't speak to me. I'm 50 years old, brownish hair going grey. Excuse me? Oh, and, and I wear spectacles and rather brightly coloured clothes. Oh. I'll get up at 2pm and leave the bench. What you will want will be left on the bench, folded inside a copy of the Daily Telegraph. Your typewriter, an Olivetti Letter 32, is now a prosecution exhibit. Does it look as if the note came from the Olivetti? It's hard to say, but... Possibly, yes. Mm. One life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it. But to sacrifice what you are, and to live without belief, that is a fate more terrible than dying. I'm sorry? It's Joan of Arc. Yes. Think about it, Miss Tuttle. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Despite some more urging from me, my client insisted she was totally innocent. I left Liz Prober to escort Miss Tuttle from Chambers as I gathered up Ballard's best man and took him to Prentice Alley in the City of London, to the premises of Vanbury's the Vintners, purveyors of fine wines and distinguished spirits. How on earth do you know about a place like this, Rumpole? Your information, Erskine Brown. I'm about to defend Mr Dennis Timpson, who introduced me to this emporium. How exactly did a Timpson introduce you to a purveyor of fine wines? My client is accused of handling six cases of pricey claret stolen from here. From here? 
You can't buy wine from a merchant who's a victim of your client. Martin Vanbury is merely an alleged victim of a crime that may or may not have occurred, and I am buying nothing. You are Bollard's best man, and you are making the purchase. Should we try some Chablis first? Wake up the old taste buds? <clears throat> Do we help ourselves? Yes. How oh, lovely. A glass for you, Erskine Brown. Uh, just a mouthful, thank you. Hmm... What's the matter with you? Can't you spit? I'm sorry? And so you should be. Over there, expectoration corner, wooden crate full of sawdust. You want me to spit my wine into sawdust? That's what one does, as a connoisseur. Are you a connoisseur? I am Honoria Bird. Oh, my goodness. You say that as if I should have heard of you. I'm afraid I haven't. Rumpel, Miss Bird is the fine wine correspondent of the Times. Oh, really? So you know a little bit about this plonk we're drinking? Plonk? There is no plonk in Vanbury's cellars. Is everything OK over here? Ah, uh, Kenneth. Hello, I'm Kenneth McRae. I work for Mr Vanbury. And you are? Horace Rumpel. Claude Askenbrown. We're looking for some decent wine at a reasonable price for a high-profile society wedding. Please, Rumpel, let me do the talking. We're looking for some decent wine at a reasonable price for a high-profile society wedding. Mm -hmm. Very nice, yes. Um... You should try this little favourite of mine. What is it? No peeking. Let me hide the label. See if you can guess its provenance. Kenneth, why don't you have a guess as well? It's good for the education of your palate. If you hope to be a master of wine someday... Yeah. <laughs> Could I also have a glass? If you must. Oh, that's disgusting. Don't be absurd. <coughs> Kenneth, you must recognise the grape variety. Gosh, yes, yes. It's unusual. <laughs> Never tasted anything quite like it. Try harder, Kenneth. Think of a whiskey, translated, a white horse. You mean a cheval blanc? Really? Keep to the right... Right bank of the river. Saint-Emilion. Very good. No marks for you, Mr. Rumpel, nor you, Mr... Erskine Brown. Take me to your burgundies, Kenneth. I feel the need for a good Chambertin. <clears throat> oh, it's not just me, is it? This really is undrinkable. Oh, yes. Very much the sort of thing you'd consume in Pomeroy's. But never mind the wine for a moment. <clears throat> May I invite you to the Royal Opera House... What? Well, you won't actually have to come. You mean you're not inviting me? I just did invite you. And I refused? No, you accept it. At least, if Philly ever asks you, I invited you, you accept it. You came to the opera and you enjoyed yourself enormously. Seems unlikely. Who are you actually taking? Well, possibly Miss Probert, if I pluck up the courage to ask her. You're going to invite Liz Probert to Covent Garden? You think I shouldn't? Why would you want to? Philly's never keen to see anything. At least she's never keen to see anything with me. But if she ever found out you were taking another woman to the opera, wouldn't she think that was an act of betrayal? Oh, yes. I think she might leave me. Well, Claude, if I were you, I'd ask Liz Probert to the opera. The next day, as Liz Probert drove me in her Mini Cooper towards Brixton Prison, I couldn't help comparing myself to Iago... Were my motives so base that I was encouraging Erskine Brown to make his wife sufficiently jealous to end their marriage? Mr. Rumpole. Hmm? Do you think Mr. Erskine Brown fancies me? 
Mr. Erskine Brown fancies almost everyone of the female persuasion. You know he's asked me to the opera. Should I go? That depends whether you enjoy Wagner so much you're prepared to suffer some unwanted attention in the crush bar. I've never heard any Wagner before, but I would like to see what all the fuss is about. And I'm sure I can make Mr. Erskine Brown keep his hands to himself. If you're willing to risk it for the sake of five hours of screaming Valkyries, good luck to you. Putting all thoughts of Claude, Phyllida and Liz Probert's potential love triangle to one side, I led the way through the grim corridors of Brixton Nick towards the interview room, where we met our client who was charged with handling wine stolen from Vanbury's The Vintners. Dennis Timpson was probably the least successful of the criminal clan who gave me so many briefs year in, year out. He was currently on remand, having been found in possession of several cases of Chateau Cheval Blanc, allegedly taken without permission from Prentice Alley, and shipped all the way to Dennis's lock-up garage in Bromley. Pa, is it any good, Mr Rumpo, the wine in my garage? Didn't you try it? Oh, teetotal me. It's strength that leads to crime. We all know that, don't we, Mr Rumpo? Do we? Oh, yes. Alcohol is the primary cause of many acts of criminality, Mr Timpson. You're not suggesting we ban it, I hope. Where would I be without Pomeroy's? At home, with your wife. My point, exactly. But we're not here to discuss my life sentence without the possibility of parole. We must try to work out what, if anything, can be Mr Timpson's defence. Dennis, if you didn't intend to drink the wine, what were those bottles doing in your lock-up? I got them cheap. Thought I'd sell them on to somebody having a party, wedding reception, bar mitzvah, you know. And where did you get them? The judge might be curious to know. Well, there was this fellow what I ran into down uh, the king's... Well, what's the matter, Mr Rumpel? Please, Dennis, can't we have some sort of variation? Judge Bullingham's getting tremendously tired of that story. Bullingham? We're not having him again, are we? I'm afraid we are. So prepare yourself for more bull down the bailey. And tell me, this character in the king's head... Not anyone whose name you happen to remember. Afraid I can't help you there, Mr. Rumpo. Hmm. And what are my chances? Your chances? Well, you've heard about snowballs in hell. The loser of the wine is the principal witness for the prosecution. Martin Vanbury, the proprietor of Vanbury's The Vintners. Mr. Vanbury will say the wine was stolen from his premises. You will say you bought it from a bloke in a pub. The jury will say you're guilty. And I'll say bollocks. Liz Probert drove me back to Chambers, where I tried to go over the witness statements and inadequate alibis that formed the hopeless brief. Hopeless, that is, until Liz Probert interrupted my careful analysis of the paperwork. Mr. Rumpole? No, not now, Hilda. No. Oh, sorry. Uh, Were you asleep? Absolutely not. I was thinking, uh, trying to form some kind of strategy. Well... I may be able to help. Or rather, Kenneth McRae may be able to help. Kenneth? McRae. He works at Vanbury's. You met him there, apparently. Anyway, he just rang with some rather interesting information. The information was not only interesting, but also offered Dennis Timpson a defence that might even win over Judge Bullingham. The next morning, I found myself in court number three of the Old Bailey. Mr. Rumpole, do you really wish to detain this gentleman in the witness box? I do have one or two questions for Mr. Vanbury, my lord. Uh, can't imagine what they could be. Mr. Vanbury, the wine you lost, was it insured? Of course. I'm very prudent. I had it fully insured. As Mr. Vanbury says, he's a prudent businessman, Mr. Rumpole. 
He knows the value of comprehensive insurance. Well, as a prudent businessman, how long have you been selling fine wines? It must be uh, three years now. And what were you selling before you joined the wine trade? Paintings in Chelsea. Nineteenth century Italian watercolours were our speciality. Oh, I have a pair of small balonies myself. The name of that business was what? Vanbury Fine Arts. Yes, yes. Now, I see from this correspondence, bundle 17, my lord. Yes, I have it. That Vanbury Fine Arts made a substantial insurance claim in respect of your King's Road premises. We had a serious break-in, and most of our stock was stolen. Yeah, you seem to be somewhat prone to serious break-ins, Mr Vanbury. I wonder if I could ask the usher to take uh, Exhibit 34 over to the witness. It's a bottle of wine, my lord, and I'd like the witness to examine the label. Uh, thank you. Mr. Vanbury, you say the bottle contains vintage wine of a very high quality? Oh, it does, my lord. Uh, Cheval Blanc, uh, 1951. Which you were selling at what price? I think around £3 a bottle. And in short for? The full price, £3 a bottle. Such a wine would be hard to replace. Of course it would. We all know how impossible it can be to find a decent burgundy these days, don't we? Members of the jury. It is actually a claret, my lord, not a burgundy. A claret? Yes, of course it is. That's what I said. Can we move this along, Mr Rumpole? As your lordship pleases. Mr Vanbury, you lost some 50 cases, in short, for £36 per case? That is so. And you were compensated with £1,800? A considerable loss to the insurance company. And a considerable profit to whoever dealt with it illegally. My lord, I have an application to make in respect of Exhibit 34. Oh, very well. I wish to apply to the court to open this bottle of alleged Cheval Blanc. You're not serious. I am entirely serious, my lord. Indeed, I have come equipped with a corkscrew. But, but what would be your purpose in opening this bottle? The purpose... Of tasting it, my lord. This is a court of law, Mr. Rumpole, not a bar room. Oh. I've sat here listening to your cross-examination of this unfortunate gentleman who has allegedly suffered at the hands of your client, but I do not intend to sit here while you drink the exhibits. Not drink, my lord. Taste. Very well, Mr. Rumpole. In the quite exceptional circumstances of this case, I... I'm prepared to give you leave to taste. And so the party was on. I opened the bottle, a matter in which I had some practice, and asked the judge and the prosecuting counsel to join me. The usher brought over three tumblers, and I poured generous measures into each glass, at which point my eye lighted on Martin Vanbury in the witness box, and I saw his forehead shining with sweat. The prosecuting counsel, Mr. Tristram Poulet, sniffed doubtfully at his glass. The bull took a short swig and looked enigmatic. And I tasted and held the wine long enough in my mouth to be certain. Thanks to the phone call from Kenneth McRae, Liz Probert had already made arrangements for our next witness to be none other than Miss Honoria Bird, the fine wine correspondent of the Times. Miss Bird, will you please take a sip of Exhibit 34? Mm. I'm afraid mm. we have no expectoration corner, so you'll just have to swallow the wine. Mm. Mm -mm. 
Oh. <laughs> now, would you please describe what you've just tasted? Oh, I'm not sure it's worth a description. Even so, my client's liberty may depend on what you say. Well, then, uh, it's a rough, crude, Bordeaux type of mixed origins, possibly some product of North Africa. Ah. Would you price it at three pounds a bottle? <laughs> it would be daylight robbery to charge more than two shillings. The wine you just tasted came from a bottle labelled... Cheval Blanc, 1951. I take it you don't think that's what it really is? <laughs> Certainly not. At a blind tasting which took place at Mr Vanbury's Emporium, you were present when one of Mr Vanbury's assistants identified a Cheval Blanc which you had poured for him. Uh, a Mr Kenneth McRae? Yes, I remember the tasting. But I'm afraid I was encouraging Mr McRae to identify the wine as a fine claret. He's studying to be a master of wine, you see, and I try to help him when I can. Did you sample the wine yourself? Later, when I was alone, yes. And did you think it was a genuine Cheval Blanc? No. I'm quite sure it wasn't. It was disgusting. Just like Exhibit 34? Identical, I'd say. The exact same wine. Thank you, Miss Bird. <laughs> and so we moved on to the evidence of Kenneth McRae himself. <clears throat> Mr. Vanbury had a few bottles of the Cheval Blanc in the cellar, but then a new consignment arrived. Arrived from where? Well, that's the thing. I'd never heard of the supplier before. It was some address in Essex. Normally we get all our claret directly from French suppliers, so I, I was a bit confused. Did Mr. Vanbury explain the new source? No. He just told me to keep the new bottles separate from the old, but... I'd already unpacked a couple of the new cases and mixed them up on the shelves. It was the rest of the new Cheval Blanc that got stolen. How did Mr Vanbury react? He wasn't too bothered, to be honest. Not until I told him about the bottle I tried with you and Miss Bird. I said it didn't taste right, and he said I should keep my mouth shut. Mr Rumpole, I'm not absolutely sure I follow the effect of this evidence. If Mr. Vanbury were in the business of selling the inferior stuff we've tasted today, dressed up as highly expensive claret, surely the deceit would be obvious to anyone drinking the unpleasant plonk. I'm not suggesting the plonk, as your lordship calls it, was in Mr. Vanbury's possession for drinking. Mr. Vanbury had it for stealing. What? Vanbury had fixed the burglary at his wine shop so that he could claim the insurance money on the value of expensive, genuine Cheval Blanc. No doubt whoever was asked to remove the swag was instructed to dispose of it on some rubbish tip. Instead, it got sold round the pubs of Bromley, where Dennis Timpson bought some and was tricked, without his knowledge, into a completely honest transaction, because it was never, in any real sense of the word, stolen property. I explained all this at length to Mr Justice Bullingham in the presence of the chief prosecution witness, Martin Vanbury, who was soon to become the defendant in a case of insurance fraud. But it was time to move on. Walking in St James's Park with Liz Probert, we turned our attention to Rosemary Tuttle. I wonder if Erskine Brown could get some free wine for Ballard's wedding if he offers to defend Vanbury pro bono. I don't think that would be allowed. I expect the Bar Council would say there are rules against such deals. But you might mention it to Claude, 
Will he takes you to Covent Garden? Oh, I'm still not sure I should go. Oh, you must, Elizabeth. You really must. Uh, right. Shouldn't we concentrate on the secret biscuits now you've won the dodgy plonk? I suppose we should. But it's so nice to be able to savour a rare success in court. Oh, I'm sure you'll also succeed with Rosemary Tuttle. I wish I shared your confidence. Our client does herself no favours by insisting she's innocent. But do you think that's the bench she sat on to eat her sandwiches? First bench on the right, after you've crossed the bridge. Yes, that must be the one. Now, where Mr. do you think... Mr Rumpole! I'm not late, I hope. Bang on time, Mr Bowling. Yeah, you remember Elizabeth Prober? Yes, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming to meet us. Oh, as I said, anything I can do to help Paul Rosemary. Perhaps you can tell us if Miss Tuttle was having her lunch over there on the day in question. That's right. And that bench, is that where she always sat with her sarnies? Rain or shine. She was very regular in her habits. By regular, do you mean she consumed her lunch and left the park at the same time every day? Yes. Pretty rare nowadays. What, an outdoor sandwich eater? <laughs> a punctual civil servant. Rosemary was... is... completely dependable. And you'd be willing to say that in court? Well, absolutely. Uh, do you mind if I get back to the Ministry? There's a bit of a flap. Oh, really? Are you allowed to tell us what's happening? Well, there are rumours of another leak. Not more revelations about catering expenses? <sighs> a little more serious this time. It seems an article in an American magazine has been published which reveals all sorts of details about a NATO exercise planned for next month. Well, now the Soviets will know all about it and everyone's paranoid about who did the leaking. There'll be questions in Parliament and the Prime Minister is most unhappy. Mm. That explains the judge they've given us. Please tell me it's not the Lord Chief Justice. Worse than that. I'm afraid it's Mr Justice Bullingham again. All right. My learned head of chambers, Sam Allard, QC, opened the case for the prosecution. His first witness was Tina Bradbury of the Sunday Express, who I soon got the chance to cross-examine. Miss Bradbury, you make your living by divulging secrets, yes? I write a gossip column, yes. And you know that some gossip is strictly protected by our lords and masters. Some information is classified, yes. Yes, classified gossip, exactly. And you know that it's an offence to receive secret information for which you can get two years in the nick. Just for a story about biscuits? Oh, they're very protective of their biscuits in the Ministry of Defence. <laughs> My Lord, really? Yes, yes, Mr Ballard. Members of the jury, I suggest that after Mr Rumpole has got his laugh, we take this matter seriously. This is a case about whether or not a servant of the Crown was loyal to the interests of the government. What's your next question? Mr. Rumpole. Ah, yes, my next question. Miss Bradbury, do you expect to be prosecuted for receiving secret information? Not really. The police have set your mind at rest. I've been told I have nothing to worry about. In return for shopping, Miss Tuttle? Mr. Rumpole! I'm so sorry, my lord. In return for giving evidence against the middle-aged spinster whom I represent. You're saving your own skin, aren't you, Miss Bradbury? I have agreed to cooperate with the police. Mm. Yes. Thus upholding the finest traditions of British journalism. Mr Rumpole, have you any relevant questions to ask this witness? Of course, my lord. Miss Bradbury, let me ask you about your alleged meeting with Miss Tuttle in St James's Park. By the time you reached her bench, was she still there? Yes. I saw her get up and go. Hmm. But from the moment you saw her get up and go until you reached the bench and collected the envelope... It was always in your view? 
I can't be sure. There may have been other people passing in front of the bench. There may have been. So you didn't actually meet Miss Tuttle? Not as such, no. But you have no doubt it was Miss Tuttle, the defendant, you saw on the bench. No doubt at all. She wears rather unusual clothing. Eye-catching, you might say. Rather a foolish thing to do if she was in the business of leaking secrets. My lord, it's really not for the witnesses. Yes, yes, Mr Ballard. Mr Rumpole doubtless knows better than that. But let us both be patient as we wait for the truth to emerge. The truth? Yes, I'm much obliged to your lordship. Miss Bradbury, before that day in St James's Park, had you ever seen, met or been introduced to Miss Rosemary Tuttle? No, but I'd received her letter, of course. Ah. Now, you say her letter. She didn't sign it, did she? No. no. It didn't even have her name on it? No. So, when you say it was her letter, that's just a guess. The letter said she'd be sitting on the park bench and she'd leave at two o'clock. She was on the bench and she left at two o'clock. Mm. But to say the note was therefore written by my client is merely your assumption. I imagine Mr Ballard will say to the jury that it's a reasonable deduction rather than an assumption, Mr Rumpole. Oh, yes, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say, my lord. I really can't be held responsible for what my learned friend might or might not say to the jury, my lord. Thank you, Miss Bradbury. I sat down, fairly well satisfied, although I still had no clear idea which way the case was going. At the end of the day, I headed for the robing room, but found Oliver Bowling waiting for me by the staircase. I enjoyed that very much, Mr Rumpole. I'll try to come back tomorrow, but the permanent secretary may not allow it. Ah, yes, yes, Sir Frank Fawcett. I think the prosecution might be calling him as a witness in the morning. What sort of a chap is Sir Frank? Comes from a branch of one of your antediluvian families. Fellows that the flood couldn't wash away. Mm. I thought at the time it was a very odd description. But I let it go and said goodbye to Oliver Bowling. See you tomorrow. Give me a ring if there's anything I can do. Mm. I might call you at home, if I may. Well, I'll be at the opera tonight. Uh, Claude tells me there's a Beckmesser I mustn't miss. Oh. A, a Beckmesser? In De Meister Singer. The Meister Singer von Nuremberg. Morgen Lichtenstern. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Oh, that's lovely, lovely, yes. Um, ah. Oh, before you go, can you tell me if there's been any more leaking of the MOD today? I wouldn't be at all surprised. Sir Frank believes the department's turning into a sieve. He blames Rosemary Tuttle for everything, I fear. But you and I know she's innocent, don't we, Mr Rumpel? I gave him my best non-committal face, then went off to derobe. So keen was I to check the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations that I didn't even call in at Pomeroy's. I went straight home and muttered a couple of things to she who must be obeyed as I searched for the Tains relevant entries. Their ancient custom. What are you talking about, Rumpel? Fellows that the flood could not wash away. Are you drunk? Just for once? No. Aha! Here we go. Tea and scandal. Will you tell Nicholas that supper's ready? It's liver, onions and mashed potato. Of course it is, but not for me. Why not? I'm going to Covent Garden, de Meistersinger. You hate Wagner. I won't be there for the opera. Ah, here it is. Antediluvian families. I have it. I have it all. <laughs> Don't wait up, Hilda. I never do. 
After a short journey on the Piccadilly line, I entered the Royal Opera House through the main entrance on Bow Street. The performance was about to begin. I found Oliver Bowling at the bar, ordering a glass of champagne for the interval. Mr. Bowling, good evening. Oh, Mr. Rumpole. Do you have a minute? I have literally three minutes. Oh, then let me get straight to the point. Um, I wanted to defend Miss Tuttle on the basis that what she did was entirely public-spirited and honourable. Well, I'm inclined to agree. But she's always maintained she did nothing. <laughs> oh, my dear chap, the evidence. Oh, yes. yes, what evidence exactly? Someone left her glove by a Xerox machine. Someone used a typewriter that may have been hers. She went to the park to eat her sandwiches on her usual bench. She got out as the clock struck two... And anyone could have passed the bench and dropped an envelope wrapped in the Daily Telegraph. Why should anyone... Want to frame Miss Tuttle on a silly charge about secret biscuits? Yes. Why? Someone wanted to make her look ridiculous and dishonest and totally unreliable. Someone wanted her to appear in public as a gossipy little busybody who couldn't even get her facts about the cost of tea and biscuits correct. So, if she ever gave evidence about anything really important... No one would take a blind bit of notice. What do you mean, really important? Uh, nuclear weapons, submarine bases, NATO exercises. Would the world be safer if we did without secrets altogether? You think so, don't you, Mr. Bowling? Have I ever said that? I'm prepared to believe your intentions were honourable. What are you after? The end of the arms race? The end of the Cold War? The beginning of peace. I, I really ought to find my seat. Yeah, let me picture the moment. Rosemary Tuttle saw you late at night in the copying room of your department and you had some classified material that you intended to send to a magazine in America. Perhaps she never realised what it was you were doing, but you couldn't be sure. So you decided to make her seem foolish, an unreliable, leaking idiot who sent inaccurate numbers about biscuits to a gossip columnist. Who would ever believe a word uttered by someone so silly? How did you guess? Ah. William Congreve, a fine 17th century poet. I know who William Congreve is. Yes, yes, you quoted him twice. Fellows that the flood could not wash away. And in the note to Bradbury... Tea and scandal, their ancient custom. Mr. Rumpel, please. Perhaps you'll understand if I explain, and perhaps you'll be able to help me. Yeah, I can't, I'm afraid. It's a question of loyalty to my client. She has my allegiance. You'd better go and see your Beckmesser. Curtain up. As Oliver Bowling disappeared and the orchestra set the scene for the next four and a half hours of Dickie Wagner's Gesamtkunstwerk, I decided to order just one glass of overpriced claret before heading home. Who should I find at the bar but Claude Erskine Brown? Rumpo, mm. what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be asleep in your seat by now? I was waiting for my guest, but she hasn't arrived yet. I've always found Liz Prober to be remarkably punctual. But is she discreet? She won't tell Philip about tonight, will she? If she's not actually here, what is there to say? Well, technically speaking, I've not been unfaithful. What a romantic turn of phrase. Hilda, good as her word, had not waited up for me and was deeply asleep when I finally made it home to Froxbury Mansions. She barely stirred when the phone rang at midnight. 
and it took a couple of nudges to wake her from her slumber. Hilda. What? <laughs> the phone's ringing. Hello, 4052 Hilda Rumpel. Who? What? When? Where? Don't forget why. Yes, I'll tell him. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, that was Henry. It seems a man you know, Oliver Bowling, fell under a train at Covent Garden tube station tonight. And he's dead. The next morning, I arrived at the old Bailey and was greeted by my learned head of chambers. Ah, Rumpel, there's been a development. Death of Oliver Bowling? Yes, I heard. Very sad. Very sad indeed. He's ruined the case for the prosecution. What? I've been in touch with the Attorney General and we're offering no further evidence. Because Oliver Bowling killed himself? No. Because the figures leaked to the press about the tea and biscuits were apparently inaccurate. That makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, for heaven's sake, Rumpo, just take this as some kind of victory, will you? Only if you agree that my client can be discharged without a stain on her character. Well, I suppose so. Did Bowling telephone anyone before he jumped in front of the tube train? I have no idea. Did he confess to his boss that it was he who'd been leaking confidential information? I'm not prepared to comment. So when you say, I have no idea, you do in fact know what happened. You just prefer not to tell me. I'm not prepared to... Oh, comment. for God's sake, Bollard! Secrets! <laughs> How we love them. Only problem is, they lead to death, don't they? Stupid, unnecessary secrets lead to death. Yes? <laughs> My learned friend did not, of course, respond. So I left him there and wandered back to Equity Court. Outside the front door, I found the Porsche of our chambers trying to hide the fact that she was silently weeping. <laughs> Mrs. Erskine Brown, you seem upset. Oh, Mr. Rumpole, it's my so-called marriage. Yes, sir. I'm sure being married to Claude must be a constant source of misery. <laughs> But not for much longer. Liz Probert rang me last night. She said that Claude invited her to the opera. Did he? Oh. Liz didn't go, but she said it wasn't the first time he tried to tempt her to Covent Garden. I see. Oh, I've had enough, Mr. Rumpole. Enough of Claude, his womanising, his lack of interest in me. I'm going to leave him. I'll take the twins and start afresh. Goodness. But you mustn't tell a soul, Mr. Rumpole, until I've found a new place to live, new chambers. This is all top, top secret. My lips, dear Portia, are sealed. In Rumpole and the Official Secret by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Julian Rind Tutt, Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony, Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran, and Philida Erskine Brown was Kathy Sarah. Oliver Bowling was played by Ben Crow, Rosemary Tuttle, Deborah Findlay, Liz Probert, Amy Morgan, Judge Bullingham, Ewan Bailey, and Hilda Rumpole was Jasmine Hyde.
Other parts were played by members of the company. Rompole and the Official Secret was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio.